This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. We sat around the Cabinet table yesterday and we talked about what we needed to do. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. Fran, huge week this week. We've had two big events, one of them being the release of Labor's post-election autopsy, review, uh, analysis of what went wrong, and so much went wrong, obviously. They lost the, the, the election they were meant to win or everyone thought they were on track to win. So there's that. And we're going to talk about that with Annabelle Crabb a little bit later. She's our guest today because there's a lot to go through. I mean, 90 pages. Have you read them all? What a great read it is. Of course I have. I mean, it's it's chock full of analysis of what Labor went wrong a lot and what it did right, which is pretty much nothing. I mean, it is (laughs) pretty much comes to that conclusion. Yeah, nothing went right. Anyway, I know we're going to talk about this with Annabelle, and um, yeah, looking forward to that. Um, But we're also going to be talking drought because that was announced yesterday too. A pretty expensive drought package, close to two billion dollars. There's a lot in it. It's no coincidence it was announced yesterday. I don't think we'll talk about that. But basically, it was the Prime Minister getting another go at talking about how he's the friend of regional Australia. The funds we're putting into those zero interest loans, what this is doing is supporting farmers and graziers who know they have a future in the sector and are committed to getting to the other side of this drought and knowing that better days are on the other side. And this gives them the massive breathing space to be able to make the investments pay the employees on the farm, do the work that they need to do, purchase fodder, adjust their stock, make the decisions that they know they are going to need to take over the next few years to ensure that they get to the other side. So that's a long list of what it does, what his government is doing. As I say, it's almost $2 billion package. And uh, I say no coincidence that he announced it yesterday because the last line of the Prime Minister's press conference yesterday was, so we're here doing everything we can to help back up and support our farmers and our farm communities while Labor's talking about itself. That's exactly right. I know this because I spoke to a couple of people in the government the day before and said, oh, are you still going to announce your drought announcement tomorrow? Because Labor's review is coming out and, you know, the news cycle can only manage so much politics. And the answer I got was absolutely. The contrast is what we actually like. We like the contrast that Labor's talking about itself and we're talking about farmers. So, yeah, the, the optics they thought about very carefully and that's no coincidence but look, to be fair, they were working on it during this time as well. Oh, so. it was going to be announced. I mean, it's been signed off for a couple of days now, so it was always going to be announced this week. Um, and it was announced even closer, I think, to the uh, Labor press conference because it seems as though they did have uh, a little bit of a struggle signing off the South Australian Premier, Steve Marshall, for uh, a surprise element of this package. Because this package had, you know, a $1 billion loan facility for farmers and ag businesses, which is pretty good for money for two years, which, you know, you pay back eventually when it rains. It also had grants, but it also had this element which was people weren't expecting, which is 100 gigalitres of water to grow 120,000 tonnes of feed and fodder for animals. And that's a deal with South Australia that um, basically they can take some of South Australia's water allotment from upstream of the river, keep it upstream for farmers to grow fodder, so they're not shipping it in and paying a fortune for that. And South Australia will be paid to kickstart its desal plant, which 
which has been in mothballs forever, basically, costs a lot of money to run that, about sort of $88 million, um, to kick in 100 gigalitres of water into the South Australian reaches of the river. So that was an idea that surprised everybody. It's been mooted. Perhaps that was an idea that came prompted by um, Alan Jones's interview with the Prime Minister. He says, how does that feed a cow, PM? How does that feed a cow? Well, this is They're an feeding idea that the will cows. feed a cow. <laughs> they are literally feeding the cows. And actually desalination plants, I know the one in Victoria, have been very politicised and oh, yeah, white elephants, haven't they? And now look at this one being used to help in this situation. Look, I think the optics are worth mentioning. There's another element here. Do you remember when they first um, made a, a smaller drone announcement a couple of weeks ago and there was all of this fighting between the Nationals and the Liberals about the fact that the Prime Minister was going it alone, wasn't involving the Nationals. This announcement, the Nationals were front and centre. It was like there every so Nationals minister. There were so many minister. ministers yeah. there. Dave, you'll go now. Bridget, you have a go. I mean, it was hilarious, really. It really was. And but- the Nats were out all day trying to say, this is what you get when you have Nats fighting the fight in the Cabinet. But they didn't exactly get what they wanted anyway, did they? They didn't get what they wanted, but I would say that the sum of what they got overall is still substantial. So I think it's fair to say that the agitating that they've done, you've got to give them some political credit that they've got something out of this. Uh, they've, They've elevated the issue, I think. I mean, the Prime Minister himself elevated the issue, but I think, you know, as you mentioned him, Alan Jones, all of the shenanigans in the Nationals, including their own manifesto, as I like to call it, or, or their own draft plan for what they wanted. Which Michael McCormick has told us this week was actually just one guy's proposal and uh, wasn't really signed off by the Nats anyway, but somehow it became the Nats' 10-point plan. Well, I think I think that there was somehow some kind of agreement with a couple of backbenchers in a meeting that this was a good idea. But yes, of course, Barnaby Joyce's fingerprints were all over it. So what happens at the end? More than $250 million for drought-affected councils, right? That's one element. And that does fit into what the Nats were very much after, doesn't it? That's about stimulus. If you think about it, this is actually just about getting money out to communities. Now, in terms of whether this will work or not, I think the big question mark is how quickly they can get the money out. Yeah, that's some of the response I've seen from people in these communities. Well, it's all very well, but we need this money now. And as soon as you start saying that, PK, of course, then questions of accountability come in because handing out money quickly is great, but handing out money and making mistakes with it is not so great. And we've just seen the Auditor General kick the coalition for handing out money back in 2016 because it wasn't accountable, it wasn't transparent. So, you know, you do need to be a bit careful and get, as David Littleproud would say your ducks in a row. No, he loves the ducks and he likes them to be in a row. There's other elements too. They've thought about this very holistically. It's not just about stimulus. Of course, there's the keeping children in schools and mm. childcare support very popular. as well. Yeah, and that and that's kind of been a key issue. So they've thought about community-wide, the businesses, not just the farmers, the families, not just the farmer. Um, so the package is broad. And the interesting part, I think, is the message under the message, which is this isn't set and forget. You know, we will work towards any changes we need to make right up until budget time and beyond, of course, and they'll be yeah. watching what happens over We've summer. We've got in your terms back of- is the message. And I think, I mean, I suspect there will be more money again on a drought theme in my EFO because, of course, as soon as you give money to some, that you're creating losers. And already some of those businesses in these country towns are saying, well, this is great, this loan facility, but it's only for ag businesses. What about the mechanic? No one's getting their truck services because they've got no money. What about the hairdresser? And I wonder if in my EFO there'll be something for more broadly tax support for some of these 
these businesses. There's a lot of pressure on the states coming on. I was about to say states, 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 yeah. yeah. Payroll tax, you know, that that could be for all businesses. So I think there's more to come, definitely. Yeah, so at this stage the government's using this package to try and put political pressure on the states. We haven't seen kind of anyone come and say that they're planning to do that, but whether the government can leverage its muscle with this package and say, hang on a minute, now it's your turn. That's the big question And I think they will in some of the states, New South Wales in particular, have already spent a fortune in their drought funding packages. So there is a lot of state money going out, but there's always more. And we keep hearing this call for relief from council rates and relief from payroll tax. And that's what the government was hitting to yesterday. So I think that, you know, there is growing pressure on the states to do something. Queensland's going into election campaign, aren't they, next year? So I'm pretty sure they'll be responding. Uh, Yeah, I think really the ball is in the state's court. Annabelle Crabb, ABC political writer and commentator, author, podcaster, all-round general superstar. Welcome to the party room. How are you going? My poison for today is a cup of tea. I'm not really fulfilling my end of the party bargain. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, I'm glad that you're having a lovely cup of tea and hopefully some wonderful muffins. Any muffins? No, there's no solids at this stage. It's been a busy sort of a day, but uh, <laughs> I just, I'll come up with a muffin at some point. I hope so. All right, so this week, of course, Annabelle, you've been invited onto this podcast because we want to talk to you you about the ALP post-election autopsy that was released right. by the Labor Well, it wasn't Party. my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, I blame you entirely for everything. Um, look, South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall and former Trade Minister Craig Emerson put it all together. They spent mm. months, in fact, it's been six months since Labor's bruising election loss. Yep. Just broadly first, before we drill down into some of its recommendations, what did you make of it? It is a really interesting read. And I don't think I've ever said that before about an (laughs) internal party review document. Often these accounts are so overlaid with internal tensions and the need to be mealy-mouthed about obvious things and often jargon and whatever that they're practically unreadable. It reads as a very frank account and it's well-written. So it's quite compelling and it's also at the same time quite gentle. Like it hasn't chosen somebody to be the repository of all the bitterness and disappointment. And that often happens, you know, like and in the days after that election result, you know, there was a certain amount of, oh, God, who's going to carry the can for this? And the answer in this review is that it's a collection of factors that combined. That's right. And I think, look, just to um, sort of set the scene for this, I'm going to lay out a few of the key findings because there was a lot of anticipation that, you know, Bill Shorten would be carrying the can for this. And the, the finding number eight was that Bill Shorten's unpopularity contributed to the election loss. But, you know, there was a lot of words around he shouldn't carry the can for all of it. But I think the the first few findings are really instructive. Labor did not settle on a persuasive strategy for winning the election, one. Finding two, no formal campaign committee was established, creating no forum for formulating an effective strategy or receiving reports evaluating Mm. progress against the strategy. Three, Labor did not craft a simple narrative that unified its many policies. And four, Labor's campaign lacked a culture and structure that encouraged dialogue and challenged, which led to the dismissal of warnings from within the party about the campaign's direction. And it went on and on and also mentioned that they did never adapt to the new Liberal leader. So, I mean, I was just gobsmacked at number one that they didn't have a campaign strategy. Right. Then they didn't have an election committee. Yeah. And they forgot to reframe 
frame their messages because Whoops. they weren't fighting Mr. Now, Harborside Mansion. Is... They're now fighting Mr. Daggy Dad. Absolutely extraordinary, the failure to adapt from one leader to the other, even though that new leader brought a completely different style and message. So they kept using that kind of, you know, top end of town rhetoric, even though it had sort of become out of date with Mm. the end of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership. And what the impression that you get from reading the account of what was going on at Labor Campaign Central is this sense of um, hyper alertness that had been going on for some time. They thought there was going to be an early election. So all of their campaign resources and their strategy and their uh, even their research was being poured into, is there going to be an election? Is there going to be an election? There's going to be an election. Let's get some ads ready. So they were using their focus groups and stuff like that to test campaign resources without really sitting down and going, well, hang on a minute. What is our actual campaign strategy? Like, what are we trying to sell to the Australian people? And I guess during the campaign, there was, um, you know, it was like a pizza with a lot. Like every day there'd be a new and well-funded campaign announcement. And what the review finds is that that was actually confusing for people or they found it difficult to trust that all of this stuff would happen. It seemed like a bit too much and it left Labor open to this very, very targeted government campaign Mm. that Labor was going to be um, economically unreliable and be um, just massive spendthrifts. You're right. In fact, it's Finding 39. It concludes Mm. that voters most likely to be affected by Labor's franking credit policy swung to Labor, but that economically insecure, low-income voters who were not directly affected by Labor's tax policies swung strongly against Labor in response to those fears. That is the nub of the most fascinating element of this review. The people in whose best interests the ALP was trying to campaign and act during that campaign were the people who were turned off by what they were selling. And that's extraordinary, isn't it? That group of people, um, we're talking outer, urban, poor people, regional people, felt, look, my life is not stable enough right now to sustain this level of change. Yes. And so... Yes, it was a result of the franking credits and so on, but not in the way that you would obviously think, i.e. that it was a hip pocket nerve kind of problem. And I think it was not only is my life not stable enough to resist this, you know, it's the the risk of that. And then that's where the unpopularity of the leader comes in because Mm -hmm. if you're feeling this lot is risky and that was the message that uh, Scott Morrison was prosecuting every minute of every day, um, turbocharged by Clive Palmer with the same message, Labor's risky – And then you look at the Labor guy and you think, yeah, I've never liked him much anyway, or you don't have the trust in that person. It's like a double whammy. And it's compounded by the element we mentioned before, which was Labor's failure to adapt to a new prime minister. What this review spells out really clearly, and they've got a really um, clear TikTok of political events. They say, well, you know, we, Labor, were caught up in this whole, like, this is an absolutely chaotic show. They've just assassinated one prime minister. They've got this other guy who doesn't seem to have any friends. He's got no ministers that he can put up for anything. It's all a complete debacle. But um, the review says, but also the big... Big picture things that happened in that time were this Prime Minister cuts out a lot of the dead wood, rhetoric-wise, says, hey, we've got the budget back in surplus, Mm. or we're about to have, and all of that kind of cuts mentality that was still hanging over from the 2014 budget sort of got shunted a bit into history. So that was something that the review 
identifies and says, well, that, that transition happened in the minds of some voters and we didn't really pick that up. So it's just it's a fascinating cauldron of factors and I think that this review actually does a pretty good job of winkling them out and mm. addressing them um, in a pretty plain speaking way. And, and it offers a blueprint for perhaps uh, some well, markers yeah. forward. And this one is interesting. Yeah. I really, this one really, I just kept reading this one. Tell me mm. what you think, because I just think this really stands out. It warns that care needs to be taken to avoid Labor becoming a grievance focused yeah. organisation. It warns yeah. that this approach leads to a culture of moving from one issue to the next leading to the formulation of myriad policies that respond to a broad range of grievances. And then it goes on to say that that essentially the party needs to become a party of economic growth and job creation. Those two elements, in my view, Annabelle, I reckon, are about exactly we're recording this on a Friday morning where Anthony Albanese wants to go. He doesn't want it to be about just, you know, picking little groups and then picking little policies to meet those groups. That means there are winners and losers constantly. And he does think it has to become about jobs. Just before, I mean, I want to jump in here because something I discovered something really interesting, I reckon, this week. It was in an article from Greg Brown in the Oz where he talked about Bill Shorten, who wrote an article looking at the Latham loss back in 2004 and basically analysing that. And this is a quote from that article. This is from Bill Shorten, who was the head of the AW at the time, Mm. slamming Labor, quote, being increasingly confined to the left intelligentsia with too much emphasis on progressive policies on the environment, refugees and multiculturalism. Now, this is Bill Shorten making that Mm -hmm. criticism of the Latham election loss. And here are Craig Emerson and Jay Wetherill making essentially the same criticism of the Shorten loss. So Bill Shorten didn't learn that lesson, his own lessons that he was handing out back in 2004 or five. Yeah. He also had criticised Mark Latham for releasing too many policies. He said the fire and forget approach on major announcements was inadequate. I mean, people change over the course of their political lives, right? I mean, if you go back... 10 years, and you, I mean, you told me 10 years ago that we'd be having this situation where Anthony Albanese was lecturing Bill Shorten about the importance <laughs> of, you know, working constructively with business, I would have had a great big laugh. I mean, and it's funny, isn't it? I mean, Bill Shorten in the last couple of days has very pointedly said, well, I'll be around for the next 20 years. I think, wow, how amazing to watch these people go through their careers in the public eye and the extent to which they change along the way. But look, that bit that you read out, PK, I found really fascinating too. And I really found absorbing the political historical context that Wetherill and Emerson put this in. They say, they argue that historically, you know, the ALP is the party of sweeping reform, structural reform, economic reform, and so on. But they say public education, public health and housing, aged care, income maintenance, these are areas that are well-developed. I mean, not without flaws, obviously. They're well-developed, these sweeping societal structural changes. Where the gaps are, um, and they're significant social justice gaps, but they're less sweeping and the beneficiaries are smaller in number, right? So this is where they are concerned that by championing social justice concerns that relate to a smaller number of people, you don't get, like, say, same-sex marriage or something like that, you don't get the same electoral payoff 
for on a grand scale for accomplishing these kinds of reforms. So that's fascinating, isn't it? Like mm. they're kind of arguing that, well, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit of broad-based reforms has already been done and so we don't want to be doomed to sort of cherry-picking smaller, though very just, issues and not getting the bang for the buck sure. votes-wise. It's this, fascinating. The social media age kind of sets it up for that too, though, doesn't it? You know, you can atomise sure. any issue. Yes. can suddenly turn into a firestorm. So that well, lures political leaders in a way, into those small niche areas, this, you know, the policy of grievance, if you like. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, one of the classic examples, I think, and, and this is a, um, a really, really fascinating part of the review too, is Labor's behaviour on Adani. So they talk about that quite a bit and say that that the obfuscation and the lack of a clear answer of exa- on exactly where Labor stood on Adani had a lot of consequences for their votes, um, particularly in Queensland and through the Hunter Valley. So social media made it very difficult for the ALP or for Bill Shorten to telegraph different messages to different markets, which is, would have been their, uh, their instinct. And that's a particularly brutal example of how, you know, if you don't pick a lane, you get Get punished for it by everybody. The other thing is the Bill Shorten discussion. We've already gone to this a little bit, but if we can just explore it a bit more, because the report does say that his unpopularity was one of the factors, as we've said. But many Labor people have pointed out to me that it's quite kind in many ways to Bill Shorten. It's very careful in its language. And I know that the authors were very deliberately careful about the way they framed it. He's an ex-leader. He's still on the front bench. It's about being respectful and also... Res- be there for 20 years. You've got to be nice to him. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I think there's an element of he's going to be there till. Have you seen the Daily Telegraph's mock up of what he'll look like in his 70s? Uncannily, he looks like Malcolm Turnbull, which is a little eerie, freaking me out a bit. But there is a whole section called Did Bill Shorten Cost Labor the Election? Yeah, that's uh, a headline, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really which is very helpful it, yeah. when you're doing like a little search. Yeah. It says no single person or factor cost Labor the election, but it does say that his standing among voters was this, I think, is really important, was not tested in the 2016 election yeah. because nobody really expected Labor mm. to win. So they, they don't right. – they discount that – they say essentially it was a, a referendum on Malcolm Turnbull, as somebody put mm. it to me, and Bill Shorten therefore wasn't tested as the leader. And then they didn't anticipate that he would be tested so much and it would become about him at the next election. They also right. say that almost six years of opposition inevitably will take its toll on the popularity of any mm. opposition leader. But really, they don't they don't go fully nuclear on Bill Shorten, do they, Annabelle? Right. And I think one of the amazing narrative lines through the last six years is that at the 2016 election, Bill Shorten so nearly won that it kind of gave everybody an impression about his marketability and also his the acceptability of various of the policies that they took to that election. So, for instance, they went to um, the 2016 election with negative gearing reforms and nothing terrible happened. So the takeout from that was, well, like, well, this this is clear. This is okay. This is not a problem. It's almost like it's been laundered by the 2016 election. Yeah. That fed into this idea that Labor was sort of poised for victory and going to fall over the line. And that 
influenced not only the behaviour of the party and the behaviour, I think, of the leader and the organisation, but also, crucially, the behaviour of the kind of people who were banking a Labor victory. Mm. And this, the report makes this um, really clear that one of the problems for Labor was that all of these industry groups, peak lobby groups, all of these advocates were all factoring in a Labor victory. I mean, why wouldn't they be? That's what all the polls were saying. That's what all the commentators were saying. Even Sportsbet paid out <laughs> anyone who put money on Remarkable. a Labor victory two and a half days before the election. So that's the environment we're dealing with. And so in that context, what happened was that the campaign became much more about, well, what's going to happen after Labor wins the election? And what Labor's got to be in the frame for, you know, answering these questions. It's almost as if they were the government already. And the review makes the point that that put them under a huge amount of pressure and also created these expectations that yeah. were and um, also also stopped them analyzing their their own policies and their own behavior because they yep. kept saying well look at the polls it's obviously been baked in already that was yeah. their response yes. hey annabelle just um before we finish up today on the other side of politics yep. i think it's worth just spending a moment at, on a big announcement that was made since we recorded the last party room which was the prime minister's a t- a speech in queensland to the resources yeah. council announcing yep. a government will crack down on boycotts uh, of gr- secondary boycotts, he called them basically all the groups who are leaning on suppliers, small businesses who support the some of the big coal mining companies, basically. Right. So um, they're talking about like groups like market forces that actively target companies that s- provide services to resources companies of which that organisation disapproves. So it's like it's activism through consumer lobbying. Yeah. So it's a crackdown on consumer boycotts, which mm. seems quite illiberal, really. Well, so and I'm um, not sure how what he told the it. Queensland Resources Council when he was there um, recently was, don't listen to environmental activists who are illiberal in tendency. He said, listen to the quiet shareholders instead and not protesters. But here's what he said about progressivism. He said, it, it, progressivism and this sort of um, activism attempts to get in under the radar, but at its heart would deny the liberties of Australians. And what he's proposing is asking the Attorney General, poor old Christian Porter, who sort of gets these big bubble ideas and has to somehow make them into <laughs> legislation, um, to to ban activists from advocating secondary boycotts of companies that are supplying services to resource companies or whatever. Now, this is a pretty red-hot idea. It's been floated before. Uh, the Abbott government had a bit of a tickle at it in 2014. Look, the Competition and Consumer Act already contains these civil penalties for secondary boycotts, but there are carve-outs for if a protest is for the dominant purpose of environment protection or consumer protection. And when the Abbott government had a bit of a think about it in 2014, they eventually backed off. But what we think the Prime Minister is wanting the Attorney-General to do is to somehow walk back that exemption for environment protection. It's now, funny, isn't it? such a loaded word, though, secondary boycotts. One person's yep. secondary boycott is another person's advocacy, isn't it? Well, this is the thing, right? And it is a very complicated proposition for advocates of free speech, right, with which the coalition is supposed to be utterly jammed. And so there's a bit of awkwardness around this, particularly for, I mean, to take an example that's cited by Phil Curry in a column that he wrote Friday this morning for um, the Financial Review, he points out that Matt Canavan is the, constantly losing his nana about the failure of <laughs> Queensland businesses to be more supportive of Adani and other resources sector players. I mean, he called for consumers to boycott Westpac because they were such wimps about 
about not wanting to be connected with Adani. So, I mean, one person's boycott is another person's spirited yeah, call that's... out for <laughs> people not to be jellybacks, right? So yeah. it's super complicated. I mean, George Christensen called for people to boycott Ben and Jerry because they were <laughs> expressing corporate support for same-sex marriage. I mean, kind of does your head in. Oh, and... People just like ice cream. Just let people <laughs> have ice creams. But look, there's a bigger issue, though. I think that Scott Morrison's also quite obviously trying to wedge Labor too, though, right? Oh, right? Yeah, thank Hello. <laughs> I reckon. I've got a hunch uh, because he's trying to test Anthony Albanese on a lot of these sure. tensions around environment and coal and mining and jobs, isn't he? That's actually yeah. going to be the government's strategy over the next two well, years. Where can they push the button so that where will Anthony Albanese go on this tension point? Because there is a well, tension point. It's it's also a, it's like a huge branding exercise as well, right? Like Because there's so many questions associated with an actual piece of legislation that Christian Porter is being asked to come up with. I mean, A, even if you put together some sort of version that was consistent with the Constitution's implied freedom for, of political expression, you've then got to get it through the Senate. I mean, good luck with that. I think what's going on here is Scott Morrison is using super provocative language. He's sending out his message in a big loudspeaker, a loud hailer, and no one can be in any doubt of his frame of mind, and that is essentially the job that he's doing. I'd be surprised if we get a legislative reform through the Senate, but the job that it's doing, it's doing already by giving Morrison a big platform and a very, very clear expression of his values. Annabelle, you've been doing a big job for us. Thank you. With the big platform. I'm only on here ours. for the tea, ladies. Thanks, oh, look, Annabelle. You've, you've gone right. wild on your tea. Get yourself a second cup. Thanks, Annabelle. <laughs> See you. Thanks. And it's time for question time. We did a bit of a call out uh, online. You may have seen my tweet. If you didn't, well, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You should look at my tweets. Chris asks, why does Labor state they're for workers but forget that everyone can be a worker? Have they forgotten about transitionary periods? It's a really interesting one, Fran. We're actually kind of talking about that in terms of the context of the Labor Review, which essentially says you need to connect with working class Australia. Yeah, and and everyone has aspirations. Don't forget that. So everyone who's in a low-paid job, has most people have an aspiration to be in a higher-paid job. If you're out of work, you've got an aspiration to be in work. So just sort of badgering and and criticising and degrading those people who are lucky enough to have wealth and high-paid jobs doesn't necessarily ring Um, well with someone who aspires themselves to doing better. So that's the kind of the language of aspiration was, as we've said, one of the review's findings that Labor, you know, got that wrong. It's not quite fair to say that Labor just wants to be about workers now. If you look at what has changed since the election, one thing, for instance, is that they now want to increase New Start, they say, rather than just reviewish. I think that's key. That's a pretty significant change, I think, and demonstrates that I think Labor does understand the fundamentals of why it exists, if you look at its foundations, which is to support it's people to support who are... the most downtrodden, really, those who are out on luck, you know, to give people a hand up, as, as Mark Latham famously said, not a hand out, it's a hand up. So that is their modus operandi, really. That's what they're there to do. I noticed the Prime Minister, you know, he really leapt on this uh, as often as he gets a chance to, basically, to say that he thought, you know, it was their ability to speak clearly to aspirational Australians that was a, a key factor. So he's sort of buying in on this too, that Labor didn't get his language right. All right, that's it for the podcast for today. You can ask us any question you like using the hashtag The Party Room. We love your questions. So send in your questions. You can rate, review and subscribe. Tell your friends about us. See you, Fran. See you, PK.
Let's do see your friend a bit more with feeling, can we? I was feeling it. No, you weren't. All right. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.